Scano Sigawani, Bojo Kwekwe Tansi, good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And of course, we are broadcasting on Element FM to Toronto and Ottawa, and of course, anywhere around the globe. If you download the Radio Canada app and uh, type in Element, E L M N T F M, and you can uh, hear us anywhere, absolutely anywhere. And that might help a little bit with our. Our two guests this morning, we have two guests on the air with us today, and uh, our first guest is Alan Grayeyes, and we're going to be talking with him a little bit uh, in a moment, but I want to tell you also, coming up a little bit later in the show, we're going to have Cindy Blackstock on. That's coming up at around uh, 40 minutes past the hour, so please stay tuned for that. But right now, I want to introduce you to Alan Grayeyes. Now, Alan is an interesting fellow, and he's done uh, quite a few interesting things, and he's up to a lot of very interesting things. A little bit of background on him. Um, first of all, he graduated from Trent University, and uh, currently he is the festival director for, well, i got to get this right, Sakiway Festival in Manitoba, and he has also volunteer work that includes positions on board of directors like the Polaris Music Prize, the Mayor's Indigenous Advisory Circle for the City of Winnipeg, the Indigenous Advisory Committee for the Winnipeg Folk Festival, and the Indigenous and Rap Category Screening Committees for the Juno Awards. Not bad. Not bad at all. But what's really interesting about this is that, um, you know, Michael, or rather Alan, is, is, a, is a guy who took business, he took business and graduated with a business degree. So you would think uh, with all this music stuff that he, would be, uh, he, he wouldn't have taken business. But Alan uh, comes from a background in business that because of, he has an interesting approach in how he wanted to help people. Good morning, Alan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. How's Treaty One? It's good. It's cold. Lots of snow out here. Um, and that means I've been doing a lot of shoveling. <laughs> yeah, right. How's the temperature right now? Uh, well, I think we have a wind chill warning in effect today, so not a lot of uh, time to be outside. Mm. I hear you. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today on the show. And um, listen, can you tell us, uh, just for our listeners, tell us a little bit about why uh, uh, someone like yourself, uh, graduating in, in the, with a business degree, ends up working really uh, quite heavily in the music industry? Yeah, well, actually, the bulk of my work on a day-to-day basis is just sending emails. And so the <laughs> university education really just prepared me to be a better writer mm. and to think more strategically. And to, I guess, the, you know, really all I learned in university was how to manage my time, to be honest. And so I think it, that's a, a great fit for the music industry. You know what? I, I've heard that about university. I heard someone say, university is just there to help you to think. Just like you said, you know, it prepares you for other things. It doesn't matter what you really study, but... Um, but I think that your background, you, you said that you also have an interest and you did well at math. Yeah, yeah, actually, I, I, yeah, I, I was good at math and that's why I took, I actually took economics at Trent University mm. because it was mostly math. Right. And uh, really, it was just kind of uh, uh, one of the necessary evils I thought I needed to, in order to build a career in, the, in any industry. And uh, you know what, I always just wanted, I just always wanted to be on the business side of the music industry. And luckily for me, it, uh, it worked out about 14 years ago. So that's interesting because, of course, when we talk about music, m- most people are interested in the front line. They want to perform. They want to record. They, you know, we hear about the artists a lot. But we do need people like yourself doing that, doing that yeah. stuff to help artists because, let's face it, let's, a lot of artists don't have that strength. They need that yeah. help. Well, and I think that's what, um, like, I'm a part of the advisory group for uh, APTN in their National Indigenous Music Impact Study. Mm. And uh, really what um, I'd love to see is some numbers on how many Indigenous people are working on the business side of the music industry and what kind of, also, what kind of money um, artists are making, like Indigenous artists across the country. Because for the most part, as a team member, for any Indigenous artist, you're making a commission, which is usually, like, 5, 10, 15, 20% of their gross or net earnings. Mm. And so I think like once we have this basic information, this baseline data on how much um, Indigenous artists are making in general, I think it'll, it might provide more incentive for folks like myself to you know, get in on the, the business side of the industry. Uh, Alan, if you don't mind uh, exploring that a little bit more, because of course we're we're uh, we're airing those commercials here, and certainly uh, that that whole impact study 
Um, we, I, I, you know, from hearing the commercials, I was thinking it was more about uh, the performance side and the artist. But it is interesting you mentioned the business side of things and how that impacts other people like yourself that are helping these artists. Because if yeah. you are making a living from artists and they're not doing well, then obviously you're not doing well. So, uh, <laughs> um, so can you explain a little bit more just for our listeners about, because we wanted to talk about this on the air and, and get a little more information yeah. out there about this impact study. Well, if you are working on the business side, and that could be like as a manager, a booking agent, or even as a festival produ- producer like myself, uh, or or um, a representative of uh, a radio station, um, you can take the study and your um, your input. There are questions in the study that are specific to your experience or my experience. And actually, I did I did um, complete the survey um, because there are uh, there's two cash prizes of a thousand dollars. Yeah. So the last one was uh, I think in January, and the next one is coming up February 18th. So I wanted to get on the prize, um, <laughs> be eligible for the prize money. <laughs> yeah. um, so I did complete it on behalf of our festival. And so with the industry side, they ask you information on like how many are how like your your annual revenue, uh, what percentage is made uh, working with indigenous artists, mm. that, that kind of stuff. Mm. Because it's not only indigenous people that we're um, that we're looking to get information from, but also folks like Guillaume de Couflet, who manages a tribe called Red and Jeremy mm. Dutcher, mm-hmm. or Helen Britton, who manages you know Tanich Gak and Reet, and uh, I think the Jerry Cans now. And so mm. I think we want to also identify like how much uh, revenue these other folks, like these Canadians in the industry are, are, are generating while working with Indigenous artists. Because again, I think that that'll provide some incentive for younger folks, um, younger Indigenous folks across the country to take an interest in the, in the music business. Yeah, you know, you just said something there that made a whole lot of sense, especially from, again, looking at it from the business side. Because you know these these uh, non-indigenous uh, managers or 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 agencies that are looking after some of the after some of these indigenous artists like you said they have other people that they're looking after some of them may be generating more money and because we all have to pay our bills uh, the percentage of 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 what people are making will probably have an impact on the percentage of time they're going to input into the artist as well would you agree with that yeah definitely um but i think like also in the music industry, good music matters the most. Mm. And so if you you find an artist that you love and that you believe in, I don't think it matters at that point how much money you're making off them at the beginning. And I think, like... Yeah, of course. It's, it's also important. Yeah, we also need people that are going to take chances on artists that they believe in. Mm. And I think um, that's kind of been my role for a long time as well. And uh, and, and again, I think we're going to find, like, the, the folks, the bigger companies, like like Guillaume's or, or Helen's that are you know, working with uh, some of the most more successful artists or the international artists in mm. our community. Mm. But um, I think, I'm hoping that we're also going to um, have some people that are just kind of in the starting points of their career, or maybe the mid-level of their career, and working with, like, artists that they really believe in that, who might not be making as much money, at, like, right now. But yeah, well, we have the every, to do so. everybody has to start somewhere. And, of course, you do need yeah. those people that believe in you and see something in you that they want to promote and help bring to the world, for sure. Yeah, that's what I love about the music industry. And I've been really fortunate. Like, um, before leaving Manitoba Music, I was uh, running the Indigenous Music Development Program there. And, uh, like, I saw the emergence of Jeremy Dutcher. Mm. And this guy just won the Polaris Music Prize. Mm-hmm. I, I just have to disclose, I'm on the board, but I have no role in selecting the winner. Right. Um, but, yeah, I remember I saw him. I remember getting his application for our Indigenous Music Residency and looking at his photo and, like, what? Like, I don't, I didn't think it was, like, he didn't have great photos. Like, the music was, like, really interesting. And I was like, you know, I, uh, I don't really know too much about this guy. I don't, these, this isn't a great presentation, not a great package. Wow. Luckily, it wasn't up to me who, yeah. to pick who, who gets to participate. So our jury believed in him. Yeah. And then when I saw him perform at, at the residency, and this residency is out uh, about an hour and a half outside of Winnipeg okay. and in the bush. Yeah. And so we saw him, when, when I saw him perform that first time, I, I ran up to the stage and gave him a big hug. Because mm. that guy, he is incredible. And I mean, that was just, it was such a moving performance. And so like being in that position again, I was able to, you know, see that way before everyone, like mm. the rest of Canada got a chance to. And so, yeah, I've been in a really beneficial position for the last uh, 13 and 14 years getting to see the emergence of a number of these great artists. 
Yeah. And and we were fortunate to have uh, Jeremy on our show uh, very shortly after he won that prize. And that was great that he, wow. was, he was able to do that. And we're happy that we're able to promote his music here, being an Indigenous station. Yeah. So, you know, uh, so the other thing I want to ask you about, Alan, is what have, what have you seen change then from the time you've been in, you know, doing this? What have you seen from the business side change? When I started out about 13 or 14 years ago, there was really just Buffy St. Marie that was doing music mm. as a full-time thing with a team. Mm. And so since then, we've seen Kenya to get, mm. like build this international team. We've seen a tribe called Red build this international team. William Prince. Mm. We've seen you know, Jeremy Dutcher. And so there's more artists that are like doing incredible things on the international stage and have like really incredible teams working behind them. But there's also like there's a number of uh, emerging and mid-level artists who are making a good living off of music as well. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that has been, like, the sound exchange royalties that are collected from SiriusXM. Mm-hmm. And so they're paying, like, off of those royalties, they're earning tens of thousands of dollars every year um, just on the the um, satellite radio playing their music. Right. And so, right. yeah, there's a lot of lot more um, interest in working with Indigenous artists because of the performance fees and the revenue that they're generating. But there's also like a, a viable living to be made on getting your music online and or um, on SiriusXM and you know registering your works properly to, to get um, uh, remuneration for your copyrights. Yeah, for sure. Every artist should be registering their music. Absolutely. Is uh, would you not agree with that? So that they, they yeah, have... yeah. It is a lar- It is a hard process, though. And unfortunately, the music industry is overly complicated. Mm. And so, oftentimes, you're registering the master. You're registering for neighboring rights. You're registering mm. the the feature performer royalty or the songwriting and the publishing. Right. And so, unfortunately, to collect all the royalties around the world. Uh, for the use of your music or the broadcasting of your music, it's it can be very complicated and overwhelming. Like just to do um, sound exchange, like it's a U.S. company, you have to know about tax treaties in order to uh, skip the um, withholding tax, which is 28% of your earnings in the U.S. And so if you're getting a check for like $20,000, 28%, Ouch. I don't know, what is that? Like $5,000? <laughs> I can't do the math. <laughs> but I mean, like... If you if you don't know those tax treaties and you can't put that on your W eight B E N for the IRS, mm. then you're gonna be missing out on five yeah. six thousand dollars out right. of that check. So there you I mean, go. There, yeah, the industry is very complicated. And again, I've just been in the like beneficial position to be able to learn all these things for the last while. Well that's great that you're able to know those things and pass those on to other people. It it's all yeah. education and it's all to help. And uh, and as we know, artists need that help because, as you mentioned, a lot of them are not making a whole lot of money off of uh, off of off of uh, royalties per se, and so uh, they need that. They need the help. So the other thing that has changed, though, I'm guessing since you started, is uh, is how the music industry has changed in terms of generating money and and opportunities that have come up. I mean, you know, CDs were were are kind of passe for sure. So. Um, how how would you say and what have you seen in that regard uh, about how how things are, are moving forward? Yeah, I think like um, artists are definitely starting to focus more on um, single releases, mm. and I think in the indigenous music community specifically, it's because of the 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 income that's available or revenue that you can generate from SiriusXM um, CDs in general. I think are are not selling very well in Canada or North America, but if you go to Germany and other markets in the UK, I think, or overseas, sorry, um, they're, they're, people still do buy CDs. And I think that from a touring perspective, you really need to have like a, a repertoire or, or a number of like an, almost a full album mm. of music be able to tour and to be able to convince promoters and festivals right. and venues that, you know, you have enough music to to be able to engage an audience for a good 60 right. 60 minute performance right. and so and i also believe in 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 the art of an album still like i believe that you know incredible albums that are crafted that you can hit play on your like if you have a record player you hit play at start and listen to the very end i think that's still there's still a lot of value in that and and i think like yeah the art art Part is still super important, and it can't overshadow the the business aspects or the consuming habit, habits of uh, Canadians or, or North American folks. 
I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the whole idea of see a single versus uh, an entire album of material because I was, that was my next question for you is, is how does that impact uh, the artist uh, in able to, to present or sell himself or herself versus singles versus, you know, an album? And, and you just basically yeah. answered that. So it does have an impact. Yeah. The other thing that I think about is, the, is how things are changing now because you hear more and more about vinyl printings. Yeah, definitely. I think like a lot more folks that still believe like in in the in the art, and and again the value of listening to an album from start to finish, and and getting a sense of where that artist is at in this point of their life is is still really important. I remember um, I'm going to quote Fifty Cent here, but he said, "Good music marks time," and so I think that there's still a lot like if I turn on like the new Danger by most staff, like I. I get a bunch of memories from the time it came out or, or um, you know, any of D'Angelo's albums. That, that's the kind of stuff that I love. And so, I mean, like I said, like, or like 50 Cent said, good music marks time. And I think uh, there's still a lot of value in that. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> I'm just wondering also uh, about indigenous music specifically. And what I mean by that is how has that been changing? Do you see more of an openness in its acceptance from powwow to, you know, Inuit throat singing and, and as you mentioned, Métis fiddle music. How, how do you see this stuff, uh, you know, emerging or, or impacting the, the overall mainstream market? Yeah, well, what I've seen in the last 14 years is definitely there's more artists who are reconnecting with their language and their cultures, and the language and culture and philosophies held within the language are definitely um, creating stuff that's unique to Canada and uh, are unique to, to Turtle Island. And I think that's where our strength is. And that's why uh, I think there's such an international interest in Tanya Tagak. Like people overseas love A Tribe Called Red, mm-hmm. and the world is just being introduced to the to the brilliance of Jeremy Dutcher now. Mm-hmm. And I think when, we, when our artists reconnect with the language and the philosophies and, you know, and the worldviews there, I think that's where the power is, and that's what makes this unique and special. And I think like as more of our generations um, start to heal and re- reconnect, and our families are, are strengthened again, then we'll start to see even more of those. One other thought that I had recently is that, you know, I think that music really needs space to flourish, like space at home. Mm. And I think, like, in a lot of our communities, we have overcrowding situations where, you know, maybe you're sharing a, a room with a sibling or a couple cousins. And I think, like, when you're in that situation, it is hard to find time to express yourself creatively. It's hard to find time to practice an instrument or, or to learn, like, practice your vocal lessons or, mm. or to do anything creative. And I think, like, once our families start to, you know, be strengthened and we have more opportunities to invest in our children and, and the ability to give them their own bedrooms and, and mm. space. And I think, we'll, again, we'll, we'll see even more um, incredible things coming out of the Indigenous community across the country. That, that's a very interesting statement. There, there are, of course, benefits to having that closeness of family, uh, especially if they're musically inclined and you can just jam along and, and jump in on stuff. Uh, but you're absolutely correct in terms of space, uh, needing that space so that an artist... Uh, can start developing those thoughts, start developing their uniqueness and their their own style and and their own approach to to their uh, to their music. Yeah, and yeah, I'm a big fan of um, Malcolm Gladwell's idea of ten thousand hours to master your craft. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, oftentimes the uh, our, our artists, our artists in the indigenous communities across the country, don't really get a chance or haven't had a chance yet to put those 10,000 hours before they leave the home. Yeah. And I think, again, um, overcrowding is a, is one of those systemic or generational barriers that we're, like families across the country are dealing with now. So it sounds like maybe you've given this some thought, and why I'm saying that is, are some of the things that you're involved with, uh, giving some of those up-and-coming artists that maybe aren't, haven't had those 10,000 hours, giving them some space, giving them some areas, some... some, some uh, place to to be able to develop and be able to nurture themselves yeah and i think that's what um like sakahiwe festival was Mm. originally launched to do is uh it was a response to the the gaps that i saw in Mm. our community Mm. like there wasn't a lot of opportunity there there's like there's some money there in Canada to help Indigenous artists learn the business side, yeah. but there's not really any any 
there was no events at the time or platforms that were giving them an opportunity to, you know, perform in front of audiences, to learn the process of advancing uh, mm -hmm. their shows, and to, you know, fine-tune their performances. And so I think that's... And also do that while being paid. Because yeah. oftentimes there are, like, music conferences across the country and around the world who have showcasing opportunities, but those are unpaid performances. And so if you're looking to develop... Um, through that, um, through that network of uh, showcasing events, there's just it's super financially challenging, yeah. and it is a competitive process. And I think I often feel like you know showcases are where dreams go to die. Mm. And so I think mm. we really needed in our indigenous community a platform or an event that you know gave these artists a chance to learn new skills mm. and to develop um, tools that they they could use to compete for performances um, at larger music festivals across the country in the future. Mm. And actually, uh, I take pride in the fact that, you know, we first brought in a tribe called Red, I think, in 2010, and uh, there was four of them at the time, and they were so impressed by the fact when they got to our music venue, our venue that we had them in, mm. that we had, like, the, the turntables and stuff set up. Oh, they cool. didn't have a manager or an agent at a time, and, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, and unfortunately, only 20 people showed up, because at the time... Derek Miller and Joy Styles were really big names in the community, yep. and they had programmed a competing event with mm. a tribe called the tribe called Red Show that we had in Winnipeg, and so nobody came to our show except for like a handful of my friends. But it was incredible, and I and again I take pride in and uh, and being there um, near the beginning, definitely not at the beginning because. I noticed them and, and the movement they had going in Ottawa, and I just really wanted that to, to have a piece of that in Winnipeg, and that's why we reached out to them back in the day. We're back on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. On the line with us from Treaty 1, Winnipeg, is Alan Grayeyes. And Alan, uh, thanks again once, uh, once again for being with us on the show. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. So listen, uh, as we were on the break, I thought of a joke. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to actually do this before the break, but we ran out of time. So, so, so you you do know how to make uh, a, uh, a turn a musician into a millionaire, right? How you give him two million, <laughs> <laughs> right? You get that one, right? <laughs> no, I don't actually get that one. Oh, he spends he spends a million, <laughs> and he ends up. Just... I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> I used to joke that I could just do it by spinning them around in one of the chairs at my office, but. Um... Mm. <laughs> so listen, before before the break, you mentioned a couple of interesting things that I wanted to explore a little bit. I, I, we also want to talk about the, uh, the, the Indigenous Music Countdown as well. But before we get there, you mentioned uh, something about this event where a Tribe Called Red was there and, and you had uh, sort of a, a competing event happening. And, yeah. you know, with some other artists within the industry. So, you know, uh, it helps one artist, but it kind of doesn't benefit the other artists when that kind of stuff goes on. I know that's just the way it goes sometimes, but logistics and planning and, and getting that kind of stuff going, um, you know, do, do we need to look further and, and more closely at how we plan events? I think things have definitely changed since then. Like that mm. was back in 2010, okay. which is nine years ago now. And so what I saw, and it, and this is like going back even further to the to the days of the Sky Dome Power in Toronto, mm. yeah. <laughs> is that all the indigenous music artists would be there right. without really any, any professional um, presenter to True. pay them performance fees and to promote the shows and yep. handle all the production and logistics and marketing. Mm -hmm. And so what it was is like back in the day, it was just a free-for-all and everyone yeah. kind of just joined together and and you know share a cut of the door mm. and so back then there wasn't a lot of people making any money mm. um, or a lot of money to be honest like 300 people paying ten dollars that's three thousand yeah. dollars but amongst like two or three access maybe a thousand dollars each yeah whereas um when we introduced uh Sagahiwe festival it was originally called aboriginal music week and it ran concurrently to the Manitowabi festival and in the Manitowabi Festival, there's the Indigenous Music Awards. And so oftentimes there'd be all these Indigenous artists who were coming to town, to Winnipeg. And again, they were just looking for um, places to perform and share their music. Mm. And so if we didn't book them in Aboriginal Music Week, and Aboriginal Music Week, we were trying to pay performance fees and be that prevent professional promoter, you know, give them a platform, and so they didn't have to take all the financial risks. But um, again, having 
that many artists in town and people just wanting to share their music. I think there was just a lot of competing events at the time. Mm. And that's, that's nine years ago. So things have definitely changed. And I think like when we run our festival now, there's, there's no competing events. We definitely, we, we've changed things with our festival. We've moved dates and we're no longer running concurrently to Manitowabi. And I think like when Manitowabi runs there, there usually are like two or three competing events where the audience is, is spread really thin. Mm -hmm. And so there's not a, not a lot of opportunity to make money during that week. But again, yep. I think it's it's just a it's a community event where people come together and they want to share their gifts. Right. And so, um, yeah, things have definitely changed in that though there's a lot more um, Canadian presenters and promoters that are, are wanting to take those chances, those financial risks on in Indigenous artists. Yeah. Like just in Winnipeg in the last couple of months, we've had Tanya Skak play a sold-out show. Yeah. We had Snotty Dose Reds Kids here. Nice. Um, it wasn't us. Uh, it was another fest, a different festival, and they presented them to like I think about 200 people at the Goodwill Social Club. And then uh, coming up, we have Jeremy Dutcher. There mm. was also Shane Coyzen earlier, earlier this month. And so I mean, like, there's Indigenous artists touring on their own without us, and again making good money and a good living um, working with Canadian presenters and promoters now. So things have definitely changed. That's good. So um, I'm just wondering, you know, somebody didn't mention there, but I know uh, we're going to have him on the show uh, coming up soon. And uh, also uh, someone that's been made, made a big impact, uh, William Prince. And I think he's from the same community as you, isn't he? Yeah, he's actually my cousin. Is he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, yeah, just deadly. Yeah, that is cool. That Wow. Yeah, he just opened for Neil Young a couple of times here in Winnipeg. Um, earlier last year, he was, uh, again, opening for Neil Young, I think, in Boston and mm. Eastern U.S. And so, um, But he also signed like a big record deal last year with Glass Note, yeah. Glass Note Records, yeah. which includes like Childish Gambino and a, and a number, like, number of really big U.S. acts. And so, it's, yeah, it's he's great. doing incredible stuff. He is, and, and what a talent, man. What a voice. The guy's got this huge baritone voice. I can't believe it. Oh, yeah. Like genuine and giving on stage, yep. And I think like you'll have to ask him about. I think it was he was in China. I think for about a year, yeah, living with a friend out there who owned a karaoke bar. <laughs> and it's kind of like the the story of the Beatles, where they were in. I think they were in Berlin, and they fine tuned their performance skills over hundreds of hours of performing mm -hmm. in Berlin. Okay, and I think that William might have had those hundreds of hours performing at a karaoke <laughs> bar in China. So you'll have to ask him that when he's on. Okay, I will. Thanks don't, for the don't tip. Tell him that I said that. Just say, I heard a rumor that you were uh, singing in a karaoke bar in China, and that's how you got so good. <laughs> All right, that's between you and me. Yeah, and the, and the audience. That's right. <laughs> so listen, speaking of, of the world and traveling, um, indigenous people are not just, uh, you know, just uh, not in Canada or Turtle Island. They're right around the planet. And um, there are some fabulous Indigenous artists around the world. Yeah, definitely. We had, um, we've been able to benefit off of um, some of the, the Maori folks and Indigenous folks from Australia coming through Canada in the past. Mm. Like I remember, um, I think it was like three or four years ago, we had um, Maisie Raika and Tama Wapera mm. um, come through, and they brought this uh, this young student with them at the time, and his and it turns out he was just super nice. Like he came to all their dinners. He, you know, interacted with all the artists that were performing at our festival. And then just last year, he ended up releasing his album, and he's he's really great. Like I had no idea. He was just this super nice guy. His uh, his stage name is Teeks, and he's kind of like a soul singer um, out in New Zealand. And so yeah, there's just a number of artists, not only making like contemporary music, but some pretty incredible. Um, like fusions of their traditional um, songs, instrumentation, and vocals. Um, mm. And yeah, it's really exciting. And I think that's like, I, I like to stress the, the fact that indigenous people and indigenous nations are just as distinct as European nations. Mm. And so the Cree are different from the Dene mm -hmm. and the Anishinaabe and, and, and the Cherokee and, and the Ho-Chunk. We're all different. We all, yep. all are different languages, mm -hmm. um, but there are ties that bind us. And the ties that bind us across international waters are, are the experience with, um, you know, uh, um, the reservation systems, 
um, colonization yep. and the destruction of our families. And, yep. you know, so I think those are ties, those are really negative ties, but they definitely bind us and, and, you know, bring us together, um, wherever we are, honestly, yep. I think, yeah. It's always it's always great to meet indigenous folks that are working in the music. I think we just all naturally gravitate towards each other at these uh, music industry conferences and stuff because you know cultural isolation and being the only native folk or or, or only brown folks mm. in these events it, it can be really lonely. And so I think like yeah, when you find somebody from New Zealand or Australia, or even the Sami folks, then you know we just naturally come together, and it's really great. It, the Sami have produced some pretty cool artists in the past as well. Yeah. Well, I, I know that Tim uh, Toolman from Tribe Called Red has been working with uh, Maxita Marak mm. a number of times, and she's like a, a Sami yoiker and rapper. Mm. And, uh, yeah, she's really exciting. Like, it's, like really cool stuff. And and speaking of the Tribe Called Red, they just, they just finished working with this very cool, uh, uh, I guess it's one of the original sort of synthesizers or something that, that's now in some museum out in, in, the, in the West. Did you hear about that? Yeah, I think there it's the Tonto. Yeah, and that's right. At the national, yeah, at the National Music uh, Center in Calgary. Mm. And so, yeah, those guys, yeah, giving Tim the opportunity to work with those old synthesizers is yeah. such a great, like, such a great fit. Like, that guy's just working all the time and creating music all the time and discovering new new sounds and yeah from what i hear the their their new album that they're working on right now is going to be pretty incredible too yeah i can't wait for that so listen we 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 only have about 10 minutes left so i want to uh, ask you if you can uh, uh talk a little bit about the indigenous music countdown uh we uh we have we run that here but it's run across uh, numerous other stations as well yeah, so I don't really I get I don't really get to listen to it very often, but I got to <laughs> say that you know the the countdown has been and Dave McLeod as its yeah. kind of uh, founder mm-hmm. has opened up a lot of doors. And I mentioned earlier how Indigenous artists of at all levels of their career are making great money off of uh, sound exchange royalties. Yeah, and a big part of that was the doors that. McLeod and the and the Indigenous Countdown opened um, at SiriusXM, and so I think SiriusXM, the first exposure or the first kind of um, experience they had with Indigenous music was just rebroadcasting the Countdown. And since then, they've launched the Canadian Indigenous People's Radio Channel, which is Channel 165. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that's translating into tens of thousands of dollars in royalties every year for Indigenous artists. Mm. So. The impact is there. Not only that, but um, Factor, which is uh, yeah. industry music associ- industry music or music industry funding agency in Canada, yeah. they also recognize charting on the Indigenous Music Countdown, and so you can increase the um, your profile rating. You can improve it by uh, by uh, including your um, charting success in your profile, mm-hmm. and and when you do that, you get access to more uh, funding programs. And you can start to make bigger investments in your music too. So, I mean, there's a lot of like two big uh, benefits of the countdown right there. Yeah, we're we're going to actually have Dave McLeod on our show talking about that in in greater depth uh, in the near future. So we're looking forward to that. I ran into Dave actually a number of years ago down in uh, uh, in Las Vegas at a at a convention. Uh, hadn't seen oh, him. For, wow. <laughs> hadn't seen him for quite a while. Um, but it was it was nice to run into him and, and, and speak with him there about uh, about about stuff. But yeah, that, we're looking forward to having him on the show and talk about the Indigenous Music Countdown for sure. Yeah, I don't and, really get to talk to him very often. He just mostly texts me um, like memes and stuff mm-hmm. every day. But yeah, I know, and of course he he's doing great stuff with uh, NCI, you know, in Winnipeg as well, and and uh, that's uh, yeah. some of the other stuff we want to talk to him about. Yeah, well, NCI, and then they have another station called Now Country. Oh yeah. Yeah, they got some. Uh, they yeah, I looked at their website. They got some pretty cool looking characters on there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so listen, Ellen, as we're winding down the time, I'm just wondering as as we leave, um, if if there are some artists out there listening, what advice would you give them for somebody that is either starting out or or you know is looking to to try and uh, do more with their with their music or with their the business side of their music and and. They they want to you know take it further. What advice would you give them? I think just create music every day. I think good music matters the most. And so oftentimes in Canada, we're 
we're forced to think that artists need to learn the business side, and, and that can be really valuable. But if you make incredible music, the business people will come to you. And so I think like you just got to like practice your instrument every day. You got to write songs every day. You got to read every day. You got to find inspiration every day. And then, um, yeah, if, you, if what you have is, is incredible, then people will come and find you. And so that's my advice is just um, focus on the art. Mm, okay. Speaking of art, um, I, I keep thinking this. Uh, are you related to Michael Gray Eyes? No, not at all. No, eh? We, uh, yeah, our family is not uh, related to the Cree folks in uh, Muskeg Lake or Saskatchewan. And so I think we come from uh, a different line. And so um, unfortunately, like a lot of indigenous folks, like our last name isn't... Um, isn't traditional and doesn't uh, you know it's something that was assigned to us from uh, from government agencies back in the day. So, Alan, when you grew up, just before we leave, we have about two minutes left. Um, can you tell us something about uh, your upbringing and your background in terms of what led you and and the opportunity to be able to go to university? How did how what was your struggle growing up and what did you have to come well, through? Yeah, you know what, I just, uh, I'm very fortunate. I'm one of the few people, not only in few Indigenous people, but a few Canadians or, or people in North America that succeeds in classrooms. I'm a big believer that classrooms aren't built for everyone. Everyone has different learning styles, and I'm just one of the uh, few people that is able to, you know, sit quietly and listen and learn through listening. Mm. And so um, I've been very fortunate. I'm I'm super, yeah, super fortunate to have that skill. But like I said, the majority of people don't. And so I've been able to use that gift to be able to succeed in, in these structures that Canada's built. Mm. And um, and I think, like, it's kind of my role or with that, with those gifts and, and that um, opportunity. I have the responsibility to give back and to create space for people that don't succeed in in classrooms. And so uh, I think um, a big movement uh, that I'm trying to pursue and build enough money for is to, you know, really deconstruct the classroom settings that we see at concert venues. Because a lot of the families, indigenous families out here in, in Manitoba, um, they they understand how to participate in a powwow. Like a powwow, you can go and stand by the drum, you can dance in intertribals, you can move around, you don't have to sit mm. in your chair quietly and listen to a performer. And so... Mm. Yeah, you know, a big big part of my understanding is that classrooms don't work for everyone, and when we replicate them in concerts, we're we're alienating a bunch of people. And so, just yeah, that's just kind of a side note. But um, my upbringing, I've just been able to do well in classrooms, and that's why I'm succeeding on the business side right now. Well, I love that little description you just made about the deconstruction of of concerts and things. Very interesting, Alan. It's been great having you on the show. I want to thank you very much. I look forward to uh, being able to get you back on here another time and and talk about upcoming things, the concerts that you're putting on, uh, the festivals. You you got your hands in quite a few things, and we look forward to being able to stay on top of that and helping you promote these things and the artists that are involved with them. Yeah, thanks for the time. And we're back on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Uh, sorry to cut Jeremy Dutcher off with that song. It's a great song. We love playing him. But we do want to uh, get on to our, our next guest this morning, Cindy Blackstock. We have her on the line. I believe she's in Ottawa. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. And are you in Ottawa today? Yes, I am. I wish I was in Hawaii, but I am in Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people might agree with you on that for uh, for the kind of weather we've been experiencing of late. Cindy, I really appreciate you being on the show with us. I've been thinking about you a lot and wanting to get you on the show. Um, I, I spoke with you uh, in the last few months. We ran into each other down at McMaster University at the Socrates event. And I have the I spoke with you afterwards and, and gave you my business card for Element FM and and we have run into each other over the years. I've seen you on Six Nations make presentations and and those kind of things, and I've had the pleasure of speaking with you before. So um, uh, it was it was great to see you, and I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for having me. You know, Cindy, your work is so vitally important to to our people, and it's so so. I can't imagine, though, because of the kind of work that you do, especially with trying to, you know, make people live up to what they're supposed to be doing, I guess, in so many ways. You think of Jordan's principle, for instance. And um, 
I know that that you're you're uh, you're unwavering in your cause, and we we appreciate that. I certainly appreciate that. Um, you know, as the executive director of First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, which how long has that been going on now for? How long has that well, been? Well, we were actually this is our twentieth anniversary. Wow! Good, yeah, founded out there in Kingsclear First Nation out in Fredericton twenty years ago in May. Oh, uh, congratulations! Oh, thank you. So what? In the last 20 years, have you seen change? Well, uh, finally, we're starting to see Jordan's principle actually make a difference in the lives of children all over this country. So within this last year, about 210,000 products and services have uh, been received by children all over Canada that otherwise wouldn't have been received. And that's a great credit to Jordan legacy, his family's persistence, and, of course, to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. The other thing that's changed is that we're uh, finally starting to see prevention services, even though the tribunal ruled ordered them in 2016. It took a few more non-compliance orders, but Canada is finally starting to, to put that out the door. And I think one of the most kind of positive change is really when I see First Nations and non-Indigenous kids standing together for this in, against this injustice of unequal funding for public services on reserves. Kids of all different diversities get it, and they're all willing to take action to make sure that it stops. And that's been just absolutely phenomenal for me to see. Cindy, why do you think that is? And what I mean by that is why do you think that in- inequity exists, or why did it why did it persist? Why? Why? I mean, if everybody gets it, why is it still there? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think part of it is that we've normalized it so much, mm. right? You know, um, that, and I think that's sometimes true of First Nations as well, is that we've gotten so used to not having the same thing as everybody else that you just try and make do with what you have. But I just fundamentally think that our kids are worth the money, and it's absolutely unacceptable to me that they get anything less than other children, particularly given the trauma residential schools and everything else, which makes their needs higher. So um, I think we have to denormalize it. We have to say that racial discrimination against our kids is uh, not okay, and it needs to be our top priority. Um, you know, sometimes it rises to being top priority, but often, too often, I think it's uh, overflowed by resource and land concerns. And not to say that those aren't important, but the kids are important too. Is it fair to bring up political will? I think it's absolutely fair to bring up political will. I think, um, you know, again, that kind of circles back to that normalization mm. um, where uh, politicians of uh, various government parties, et cetera, have just not prioritized this. And, you know, it's interesting for me where I see uh, government politicians, uh, you know, rising up against discrimination against others around the world, but they perpetrate it here and they legitimize it here. And they actually want to be thanked for the discrimination here. Like one of the things that I find so interesting is that, say in a budget, they give a little bit more for education, but it still falls short of what other kids get. They want us to appreciate that. And I think, you know, um, I, I can't be thankful for discrimination, any level of discrimination against a child, and we all shouldn't accept that. We should be pushing until those kids get the same opportunities as other kids, but in ways that honor their culture and their rights. Well, speaking of rights and political will and and those kind of things, you know, how many times have I heard that that if the uh, if the federal government lived up to its obligations uh, through the treaties and 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 what it actually is supposed to have done for for First Nations and Indigenous people, that you know it would break the bank, it, you know, it would crush the country. But 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 that's part of the point, isn't it? It's 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 the point that it hasn't been lived up to, and it wasn't ever. And why 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 were these these uh, these treaties in place that were obligations uh, actually distorted and not lived up to, and, and 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 put us in this position that we find ourselves now? Yeah, well, I think it all goes back to that savage civilized dichotomy that underpins colonialism, mm. and um, so. 
there, given that you know the, the classification of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit was kind of on the savage side, I think that's persevered. That DNA of colonialism has persisted throughout these years. And I actually, I don't think it will break the bank. Like my argument on the kids stuff is, if Canada is a country that's so broke that we have to racially discriminate against little kids to keep our heads above water, then what are the kids losing to? Well, we're spending I don't know how many billion renovating Parliament buildings. Um, you know, we're sponsoring the World Cup, and we just spent close to $5 billion on a pipeline. So it's it's clearly not going to break, break the bank if you treat kids fairly. And, in fact, the best evidence in the world shows that there's no better investment for a government than kids. If you put a dollar into a child, you get $18 down run. So the economic arguments don't make any sense either. I think it really gets back to the savage and civilized dichotomy and this normalization of racism for First Nations kids that we have to break through. Cindy, I, that's what I, what I one of the things I love about you and speaking with you and hearing you speak is your ability to to put this into very simple terms and and express things in a way that we can all go, oh yeah. So I, I thank you for that. But I, I want to also, um, you know, we don't have time to go into so many of the details and so many of the things here. Uh, but you know, we talked a little bit about Jordan's principle. You're saying that that's starting to reap some benefits. And that's yes. great, but it wasn't always the way, was it? Oh, no. I mean, Jordan's principles existed since 2005, and then it was adopted in the House of Commons in 2007. But it took, um, now the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, we, will have been, we filed that case 12 years ago, and Jordan's principle was part of it. So it took, um, you know, 14 years since it was created, 12 years since we created the case, and four legal orders to get Canada to begin to comply. So that tells me just how deeply embedded in government DNA this tendency to discriminate against our kids are. But, um, you know, it also shows all of us, though, if we hang in there and we really try to honor the legacies these children and these community members leave for us, and we push through and we use litigation if necessary to achieve it, that we can make changes. And that's really what the encouraging part is. We need to push through. I'd like to see a lot more legal cases on human rights for First Nations children than what we're seeing now. And there are so many issues facing uh, Indigenous and First, First, you know, First Nations people in this country. You know, missing and, missing and, and yeah. murdered women, uh, you know, uh, so many things, uh, so many things. Fresh water, you know, sanitation we've heard about and, and the continuing issue of mold and those kind of things that we just recently heard about uh, in the last couple of days. It, it's all uh, so overwhelming, but I'm glad that you and people like you can start to, uh, start to take these things apart and pay, take one thing at a time and focus on one thing that, that we're able to, to break it down and not look at it in an overwhelming way. Well, and you know what? Uh, the best research in the world shows us if you treat people equitably, then um, you have all kinds of positive outcomes. I don't think this is too complicated. I think if we were to, we have something called the Spirit Bear Plan. Yes. And what we want the federal government to do is cost out all those inequalities and all the things you talked about, housing, water, sanitation, um, child and maternal health, early childhood programs, recreation programs for youth, mental health, that kind of stuff. Let's get the big ticket of how much those shortfalls are, and then let's launch a plan to be able to address those. And then the second part of Spirit Bear Plan is to do an independent 360 evaluation of the federal government to find out why is it when so many community members and organizations come forward with really good solutions that the government often only takes them up piecemeal or doesn't take them up at all. Yeah. We need to kind of break that cycle. Mm-hmm. So by doing this full costing out and doing an evaluation, I think we set up a real opportunity to move forward on this in ways that we haven't been able to in the past. Now, you're always, uh, you're always taking Spirit Bear with you wherever you go. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and and how long has that been in, going on for now? How long has Spirit well, Bear Spirit Bear was gifted to me by Carrier Secondary Tribal Council back in 2007. Wow. And um, originally I just brought them to the tribunal hearing rooms mm. because I wanted to have something there to represent all the children so people didn't forget about why we were there. And um, as children started coming to those hearings, of course, he would come. He would be gone from the desk all day, and he'd come back with sunglasses and sometimes with notes and drawings <laughs> of him. 
So he took on his own personality, and community members dressed him, and so now he's his own thing, and he's got a couple of books out, and he's even got his own Twitter feed. You can follow him uh, at Spirit Bear. He's far more popular than I am. In fact, right now, we're, this is for real, we're actually getting rid of all my stuff in the office so we can put up all of his awards. Because he's got like an honorary barrister degree from Osgoode Law School, <laughs> and he has a Bear So Wise from McMaster, and he has a PhD from UVic, and he's a member of the Ottawa Civil Law Society. So, like, this bear has got so many accomplishments and gets so much mail that, you know, he's pushing me out of my, my place. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and he's a great ambassador, sure right? Sure is, yeah. Because um, it's a good way to be able to reach people. And yep. I like to tell folks, you know, everyday citizens, that it's not it doesn't take any money, really, to get involved in helping the TRC's cause to action. Mm-hmm. And um, all you got to go on to our website. We have seven free ways to do it, and you can follow Spirit Bear. Spirit Bear's doing fun stuff all the time. In fact, next week, he's coming with us to have a heart day on Parliament Hill, where we'll have over 1,000 kids there reading their letters to the federal government so that First Nations kids get a fair chance to grow up safely in their families, get a good education, be healthy and proud of who they are. And the great thing about Have a Heart Day is only bears and kids can speak, no adults. Wow, that's great. What a fabulous idea. And that's next Tuesday? That's next Thursday. Valentine's Day. Have a heart day. Okay, and uh, what time? 10.30 in the morning. So anybody who's in Ottawa, you're more than welcome to come out. That's great. That's great. Um, now, do you want to talk uh, a little bit about the uh, Canadian Human Rights Tribunal? Yeah, so um, as some of your listeners might know, we filed that along with the Assembly of First Nations back in 2007 to deal with the inequalities in child welfare funding on reserve, mm-hmm. primarily the lack of prevention services for agencies. And um, I should give one plug to the agencies because I think sometimes people kind of think they're uh, part of the problem. And really, when we look overall at all the agencies, um, they're much more successful at keeping kids with their families than provincial and territorial agencies are. So that's important for us to know, even though they get a lot less funding, but that's starting to change. Mm. So we have that. And then the second one was to get them to implement Jordan's principle. And the feds really fought tooth and nail on that to try and get it kicked out on technical grounds, but they weren't successful. So in 2016, uh, the tribunal ruled that Canada's failure to provide proper child welfare funding for First Nations children and their families and failure to honor Jordan's principle was racial discrimination, and they ordered them to stop. It's the only decision I know of anywhere in the world where a government's been held accountable for its current treatment of kids and ordered to make changes so that they don't have to apologize again in the future, right? Mm. Like, do the right thing now. So. It's three cheers to the tribunal because they've just been extraordinary. And really, I, am, I honestly believe that without the tribunal, these changes that we've seen with Jordan's principle and the changes in prevention funding would not have happened. Mm. Well, that's great. Um, it's good to hear these things. Have a heart sounds wonderful. Um, I wish I could be there, but I yeah. won't be there, unfortunately. But uh, perhaps we can get one of someone from our sister station in Ottawa to go out and, and give us a report on that. That would be great. And yeah, well, you know, they make homemade signs, and there's lots of glitter and crayons and songs. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful, uplifting event. Mm. Uh, Cindy, what else is coming up for you in the future? I know you've got some. You're working with uh, Alanis Obanswin, and and yeah. uh, I guess you guys work work closely together. You certainly seemed, uh, if I can say, quite chummy when I saw you on stage together at the uh, <laughs> yeah. the Socrates Project. Yeah, you know what? I've got such great admiration for Eleni Sobom. So, and I think many people do, right? Like mm-hmm. she's just an iconic hero, um, and such a generous person, uh, and uses film as a social justice medium. Yeah. So I, I've been honored to work with her. Um, you know, uh, when she did "Hi Ho, Mr. Hey" about Shannon Kustachin and Shannon's dream, mm. and then when she did "We Can't Make the Same Mistake Twice," which is the documentary on the tribunal, and your listeners can watch that for free mm-hmm. on uh, the NFE website. And now she's actually working on a documentary on Jordan's principles. So right. we all got to watch for that because I, I can't wait to see it. I. I know that I'm going to have to have a tissue box next to me because it includes some of the actual footage of Jordan when he was still with us and his family. 
but it also, I'm hoping when it gets out there, really uh, empowers us all to recommit to Jordan's principle and make sure no child ever gets left behind because they're First Nations ever again in this country. Cindy, we have to leave it right there. We're so glad you joined us today. Thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me, and uh, happy Have a Heart Day to everybody.